Last week, we read the story of Jesus healing a man born blind in John chapter 9. And as Jesus tended to do, this healing occurred on the Sabbath. So the religious leaders were none too pleased about it. But as the religious leaders interrogated the man that Jesus healed, it became apparent that there was more than one blind person in this story. The religious leaders refused to see the truth about Jesus. They were spiritually blind. And you know, Jesus can have that effect. He helps some people see and exposes others as blind. But thanks be to God that those who believe have had our vision, once corrupted by our sin, restored by his grace. But John 9 also brought up a couple of tricky theological conundrums. First, there's the connection between suffering and sin. Jesus' disciples assumed that the man born blind, or maybe his parents, must have done something wrong for him to end up that way. But Jesus makes it clear that we can't always assume someone's hardship is a form of God's judgment for sin. That's the error that Job's three friends made and were ultimately rebuked for. At the end of the day, we're simply in no position to make those sorts of determinations. But the second conundrum was Jesus' teaching that this man was born blind, quote, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. When you think about them, those words may bother us even more than the disciples' assumption. Do we really worship a God who might allow bad things to happen to us in order that he might be glorified? Well, as we continue today in John 11, we encounter that second theological conundrum in an even more dramatic way. So open up to John chapter 11. Feel free to use our Bibles if you need one and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But before we go further, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've given to us. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for bringing us here to this place at this time, whether we're new and this is our first time here or whether this is where we are every Sunday morning. Thank you for those who are in this room right now. Thank you for the people who make a church work. Thank you that you give us people who can teach, people who can give, people who can serve, people who can lead, people who can paint, uh, people who can do all kinds of things on Sunday morning and elsewhere to make a church like ours function. And I pray that our church's functioning wouldn't be just an end in and of itself, wouldn't just be a personal little hobby or project for us, but that we would do all the things we do here for your glory and ultimately in obedience to the mission that you've given us to make disciples of all nations. And I pray this morning would be a small part of that mission. I pray that you'd be with us as we hear your word, sing these songs, pray, are reminded of Christ's body and blood, 
I pray this would all be beneficial for us as your disciples and ultimately glorifying to you because you deserve our glory. We love you. We worship you. We thank you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're going to, going to split up this big passage into three sections. We'll start with verse 1, John chapter 11. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. That's looking forward to chapter 12. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. They felt better after naps in the ancient world too. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. Unlike many of the people Jesus encounters in the Gospels, he clearly has a Long-standing, close relationship with this particular family. So when Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick, you might think he would feel a great sense of urgency to heal him as soon as possible. And to that same point, why doesn't Jesus just heal Lazarus then and there? We see elsewhere in the Gospels that Jesus doesn't need to touch someone to heal them. He doesn't even have to be close by. He could simply speak and Lazarus would be as good as new. But Jesus doesn't appear to be in any rush. And sure enough, before Jesus arrives at his bedside, Lazarus dies. So why in the world did Jesus wait around? Was it fear of the Jews? The disciples were concerned about what might happen to him if he went back to Judea. The last time they were there, Jesus almost got arrested by the religious leaders. 
But Jesus tells us why he was in no rush in verse 15. He says, for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. If you remember, that's the primary purpose of the entire gospel of John. John wrote this book so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and have eternal life in his name. So there is no way around this inconvenient truth. Jesus let Lazarus die. He let Lazarus die. He even says he was glad he was not there. Why? So that others may believe in him. Now, I don't know about you, but Jesus better have one doozy of a miracle up his sleeve after words like that. Because so far, it appears that Jesus was perfectly comfortable letting Lazarus, who he supposedly loved, die. Jesus was willing to let Lazarus' sisters sink into unspeakable grief. How could he be so callous? Well, remember, Jesus already told us. He already told his disciples what comes next. In verse 4, this illness does not lead to death. In verse 11, Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. So we pick up in verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
when Jesus saw her weeping. And the Jews who had come with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? The Jews were there for this family as they mourn, but Jesus was absent. Martha doesn't mince words in verse 21. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, we should be careful not to overblow it, but it's hard not to detect some frustration in that statement. However, Martha's words also show a great deal of faith. In saying that if Jesus had been there, Lazarus would still be alive, displays great confidence in Jesus. And we see Martha's face, faith even more clearly in verse 22. Even now, after it appears that Jesus was too late, Martha still knows that the Father will give him whatever he asks. And that's when Jesus makes one of his boldest statements in the entire Gospel of John. Verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Like many Jews, Martha believed that one day, on the final corporate day of judgment, God would raise his people from the dead. She got that idea from prophets like Isaiah, who talked about death being swallowed up forever. She got it from Ezekiel's vision of dry bones in a desert living again. She got it from Daniel who heard that one day those who sleep in the dust of the earth would awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. But Jesus tells Martha that he is the resurrection and the life. If you want eternal life, you must believe in him. And if you do believe in him, in a very real sense, you never die. He's the center of it all. And as for Lazarus, Martha might see him again sooner than she expects. But then we get to Mary. And she seems less eager to talk to Jesus. She only comes when she's summoned. And when Mary does meet Jesus, she seems more reserved, more somber, even more short with her words. She simply repeats what Martha said. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But she says it, perhaps, without the same expression of faith. Again, we don't want to read too much into Mary's words. Different people are wired differently. People mourn in different ways. And Mary's interaction with Jesus appears to be less private 
than Martha's was. But there's still something about Mary that causes Jesus to be deeply moved in his spirit. There's something about this whole atmosphere that leaves Jesus both saddened and angered. Back in chapter 5, Jesus claimed that he would raise the dead. He said, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs would hear his voice and come out. And in chapter 9, Jesus healed a man who was born blind. That had never happened before. So why in the world is this funeral even taking place? Why is Lazarus dead? It should have never come to this. You can't totally blame the Jews for their criticism in verse 37. If Jesus loved Lazarus so much, then why wasn't he here? And if Jesus had the power to raise the dead, why is Lazarus still in the tomb? And if Jesus could heal the blind, why didn't he heal Lazarus before it was too late? But remember verse 4. This illness does not lead to death. Remember verse 11. Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Remember that this story isn't over yet. Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up as you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Talk about adding insult to injury. I mean, hasn't this family already been through enough? They've been mourning for four days, and now Jesus wants them to open the tomb and smell their brother's corpse. This seems totally out of line. Has Jesus no respect for the dead? Has he no compassion for those grieving? Read the room, Lord. You can understand Martha's hesitance in verse 39. But Jesus also gently reminds her of the faith she displayed in verses 22 through 27. So the tomb is opened. And perhaps for a split second, the stench of death flows out. But then Jesus speaks. He calls Lazarus' name. And Lazarus walks out of death. And into life. This is one of the most dramatic miracles 
in the entire Bible. But don't make the mistake of overlooking Jesus' prayer just before. It appears that Jesus had already prayed for Lazarus long before he arrived at the tomb. Maybe he had been praying ever since he heard the message several days earlier. But here Jesus prays again. And he prays not so much for himself. Not so much for God the Father. He's not even so much praying for Lazarus. He prays for those people standing around watching. He prays that Lazarus' resurrection would lead his disciples, would lead the Jews, would lead Martha and Mary to believe that God sent him. That is Jesus' main priority. That's the Gospel of John's main priority. Everything else is secondary. All that happens in this book serves that same purpose. Even Lazarus's death. So after a miracle like this, surely Martha and Mary believe. And surely Jesus' disciples, even the cynical, sarcastic, relatable Thomas, would believe as well. Or at least most of them. We even read in verse 45 that many of the Jews came to believe. In that sense, Lazarus' death and resurrection served as purpose. But many of the religious leaders, even after this, are still just as blind in chapter 11 as they were in chapter 9. In Luke 16, Jesus tells a parable which, ironically, includes the death of someone named Lazarus. And at the end of that story, Jesus teaches that some in this world will never believe, even if they saw someone rise from the dead. Sadly, that was true of many in Jesus' day. And sadly, I bet that's true of many in our day as well. Now, the preaching experts say that every sermon is supposed to try and accomplish one of three things. The preacher wants you to believe something, know something, or do something. And this sermon is certainly heavy on the belief side of things. That shouldn't surprise you, because the entire Gospel of John is heavy on belief. So this morning, I have three things that I want you to believe after reading John chapter 11. First, I want you to believe that God can and one day just might use your suffering for his glory. Now, would we prefer to avoid suffering? Of course we would. But I want you to believe that even when it seems like God is allowing you to endure hardship after hardship, even after it appears that God is inexplicably absent when you need him most, 
Even when you're frustrated that God isn't fixing things when and how you would like them to be fixed, I want you to believe that somehow, and in some way that you can't fully understand at the moment, God might just use your suffering for his glory. That's what I want you to believe first. Second, I want you to believe that even when God may allow you to suffer for the larger purpose of his glory, he still loves you. He still loves you. As we saw today, in a sense, Jesus let Lazarus die. There's no way around it. But that doesn't mean that Jesus was cold, distant, and uncaring. He was deeply moved. He felt anger and sorrow at the death and grief that we are all too familiar with in our fallen world. Jesus wept. He wept because he loved Lazarus. And Jesus loves you. Even when death's stench and grief's darkness surround you. And third, I want you to believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Lazarus' death was not the end of the story for him. And when Lazarus inevitably died again later in life, death wasn't the end of the story then either. And death isn't the end. It won't be the end. It can't be the end. For those who believe. Don't just believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life because he raised Lazarus. Believe that he is the resurrection and the life because he died. And he lives. And he will never die again. In 1 Kings 17, the prophet Elijah raises a widow's son from the dead. And in 2 Kings 4, the prophet Elisha does something very similar, raising another woman's son. So how is Jesus any different from those guys? What makes him so confident that he is the resurrection and the life, and not just another prophet? Well, those prophets didn't raise anyone by their own power. They did it by God's power outside of themselves. And when they did it, while it was no less miraculous, it was a bit more involved. Elijah had to stretch himself out on the child and cry out to God multiple times. Elisha had to do the same and even gave his kid a sort of mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. But Jesus raises the dead by the divine power that is intrinsic to who he is. And all Jesus has to do is speak and the dead live. Just like he said. And you know, one day Jesus will speak again. He will return in power and glory. And once again, stones will be rolled away and tombs will empty. And all who believe in who he is, fully God and fully man, 
All who believe in what he did. Dying on the cross for sins and rising from the grave. All who believe that, though we die, yet we will live. And in a very real way, all who believe in him will never die. Even now, we've been given new life by God's spirit living within us. New life to press on in faith, love, worship, and obedience to Jesus, even when we suffer. He is the resurrection and the life. I say this on account of everyone in this room, myself included, so that we may believe that God sent him. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you that even though we live in a world where Suffering is still all over the place. Death and grief still intrude when we don't want them to be around. And even though we live in a time and a place where it's so easy for us to wonder where you are and why you're not here and why you're not fixing things and why you're doing things the way that you do them. Thank you that we can trust that you can use even our suffering for your glory. And thank you that when we are suffering, we can still know that you love us. You are not cold and distant and removed. You put on flesh the same way we have flesh. You know what it's like to weep. You know what it's like to grieve. You know what it's like to be angered by the suffering and the sin and the death that we see all around us. You know exactly what all that's like. And so, Lord, thank you that you love us as we deal with those things. Thank you that you've been through them yourself. And I pray that you would strengthen us to go through them in faith. And, Lord, I pray that we would know and believe that we are the resurrection. You are the resurrection and the life. As we said earlier in the service, we don't know when death could come. And so I pray that we would entrust ourselves to you and place our hope, place our faith in you. So that when that time does come, when we go to our own tombs, that we would be ready to be in your presence. That we would have confidence that even though we die, we will live. And in a very real way, by faith in you, we will never die. Help us believe these things, Lord. Help us take these beliefs and be shaped by them. Shape our feelings, our thoughts, our words, our deeds. And I pray that we would take these beliefs that we have, that you've given us, this good news of the gospel, and share it with the world around us that needs to hear the same thing. We love you, we honor you, we worship you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.